Welcome, everyone, to Evidence for Faith, where we teach you how to defend the truth of Christianity. I'm Keith Kendricks, and with me today is author and apologist Kirk Hastings. Kirk is filling in for Mike, who could not be here. He had a graduation to be at in Pittsburgh, so he is away traveling, but we always appreciate it when Kirk steps in to help us out. I'm glad to be here, Keith. We are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey. Check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And if you want to call in today, the number is 609-398-1020. We are expecting a surprise guest caller. But before we do that, I've got a couple news items that came across my desk I thought were worth talking about because they really describe the situation where we have today with uh, ideas in the Christian world being pitted against contrary ideas. Some of them Josh talked about in his show before about the government ideas based on Christian ideas. But there's lots of other types of ideas that are creeping into our society. This is a quote that came across from thinkchristianly.org. They have a blog that comes every day and very good, very good things there. And this is a quote from William Lang Craig who says, Our churches are filled with people who are spiritually born again, but who still think like non-Christians. So that's the situation we have. We have ideas, non-Christian ideas, that have been creeping into the church when it really ought to be the other way around. It ought to be that Christian ideas are molding the society. And I would file that under strange but true. Yes, yes. How can you be a Christian and yet think like a non-Christian? That seems like a contradiction in terms. Well, a lot of us came from non-Christian backgrounds, so we carry a lot of baggage with us when we come into the church, and the church has got to help us to renew our minds. Or to let so, go of the old baggage. And that's what we did historically. That's how Christianity developed the West and changed the world. Hmm. And I want to correlate that to what happened earlier this week, June 3rd, and this was pointed out in a, a blog that I get um, called Breakpoint from Chuck Colson's ministry. And I'm sure that most everybody heard about the perfect game that wasn't. Uh, Armando, I'm sure that Josh Henning's our uh, sound engineer today, and I'm sure he talked about this. He's uh, laughing in the over past. there. Yeah, I think so. He knows about this. Armando... Uh, Galarraga from the Detroit Tigers um, was one out away from throwing a perfect game. Now, this is such a rare thing in baseball that uh, it would have only been the 21st one ever to happen. So, so, um, so anyways, as he is putting out, he's stepping on the bag to 
put the last out on the board to make a perfect game, and he's clearly ahead. Everybody saw it correctly except the umpire. So umpire Jim Joyce called the batter safe, which ruined the perfect game. Mm-mm-mm. And, yeah. So what actually happened then? Well, the umpire actually admitted he was wrong. He said Afterwards. he was sorry. Yep. Yeah. He said he was sorry. He asked for forgiveness. And Galarraga forgave him. Wow. Yeah. So something that now, okay, how significant is that? Think about it. In millennia past, the ideas of saying you're sorry, asking for, for forgiveness, and giving forgiveness, these were not seen as virtues. Mm-mm. You know, what, what would have happened is maybe You're a some, wimp if you do that. Exactly. Exactly. It took Christianity to put into our society that concepts like this have value and look at the difference that it made in this kind of a situation, something that, you know, hundreds of years ago might have resulted in a revenge killing or an honor (laughs) killing, you know. I mean, this was a really serious mistake, and yet it wound up being something wonderful where we could see demonstrated before us on national television uh, humility— Sorrow, forgiveness, and redemption. So just, wow. you know, really an amazing thing. And I'm sure the player that did that probably saved himself a lot of frustration and stress by doing that, too. So he really did himself a favor being able to do that, or he could have been angry Absolutely. about this for the rest of his life. Absolutely. So Christianity, the ideas, the virtues that stem from Christian ideas are are good for us, they're good for society, and we need to keep renewing our minds, and that's why Evidence for Faith is here. Well, Kirk, we have an exciting guest today. He is professor of philosophy and ethics from Palm Beach Atlantic University and is on the line with us. Let me introduce him to everybody, Dr. Paul Copan. Paul, say hello. Greetings. Glad to be with you. All right, Paul, it's good to be talking to you again. We have not spoken for a while. The last time I talked to you, we we bumped into each other down in New Orleans. Do you remember that? I do indeed, walking along Decatur Street. That's right. And, and I tell you, I'd never been to New Orleans. I took with me a list of places to eat, and, and there's something I know about you that probably a lot of people don't know. And that is that you know all the best places to eat in New Orleans. Because <laughs> I bumped oh, I know in... Good, I good, know a good number of them. Yes, you do. Because I had on my list of four or five places to go to get the one of the best sandwiches in a little shop called Central Grocery. And then I was planning to go across the street and have coffee and beignets at a little place called Café du Monde. And you had the same itinerary. <laughs> So, so uh, I, I. This sounds like the basis for a new book. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Well, yeah. when when God goes to Cafe du Monde. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I'm telling you, that is one of the things I can't get over about with in the United States. As much communication as we have, we're sitting here in New Jersey. We're talking to you in Florida. I lived for 20 years in California, moved to New Jersey. The food, it's, there's a lot of differences in food. And New Orleans is the same thing. These strange things 
like I bet I don't know how many of our listeners in South Jersey know what a muffaletta sandwich is, or even Kirk. You ever heard of a muffaletta sandwich? Nope, never have. Yeah, well, we eat Australian hoagies up here, Paul. So it's sort of the same. It's like Italian deli meats, but it's on a bun that's maybe bigger than a uh, hamburger bun, sesame seed covered. Italian deli meats, and then they slather this uh, olive salad that's been all chopped up. So it's like diced olive salad, and it is delicious. It is awesome. And so this place, Central Grocery, we're doing a little free commercial for them because they make some of the they make like the best ones in in New Orleans. Do they have subs and torpedoes down there? Original Buffaletta. That's right. Yeah, they claim that they that they were the original inventors of it, and it's and it's a great. (laughs) Great uh, thing. So that so we uh, we were both down there for the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and I went to get that sandwich. And I hear you had a couple of your um, students with you, if I remember right, Paul. Okay. Yep. And I overhear yep. this conversation about Christianity, and got, you know, I say, oh, okay, well, you know, they must be over here from the from the conference. And I start listening, and you know, I wonder who these people are. So then somebody mentioned your name, Paul Copen. And Paul, Paul, hmm, gosh, I know, I know that name. And turned out I had read one of your books about three years before. An excellent book. I've got it right here. True for you, but not for me. Deflating the slogans that leave Christians speechless. Now, this was a terrific book. This was your first book, though, right, Paul? That's correct. And it's just recently come out in a second edition the upgraded, uh, added uh, six or seven chapters to it, so uh, that's, uh, that's something you may want to check out. Okay, yeah, I definitely do. I was thinking, wow, you know, second edition already, what happened? Did the answers change, or did the questions change? Uh, just expanded uh, some of the questions. Uh, new questions have come up and uh, that I thought could be included, and so I wanted to do a little bit more material, add a little bit more material, and so I took the questions out of the, the study questions out of the back of the book and just put them on my, my website, paulcopan.com, so that there'd be more room in the book for content, and then people could easily access the All right. studies. Now, Paul, you're a philosopher, and, you know, that, to a lot of people, that sounds kind of esoteric. We think of philosophers as being, you know, people who sit around and argue whether anything actually exists or not, and and yet uh, you've written 10 books, and most of them deal directly with defending the Christian faith. So what is this about? Is this just you as a different kind of philosopher, or is there something going on in the world of philosophy that makes things different? What's that all about? Well, philosophy is the love of wisdom, and Wisdom is the application of knowledge to our everyday lives. It is the, wisdom is the, the skill of living. And so philosophy shouldn't be restricted to some sort of ivory power. It, it loses its uh, impact if it has nothing to do with the man on the street. And so what I try to do is write books, yes, I, I deal with some esoteric topics, but what I, what I think is important is that we, as philosophers, try to communicate on a very relevant uh, street level, 
that we are communicating the importance of thinking consistently, thinking about the nature of reality, making sure that the sorts of things that we claim uh, are, are indeed livable um, in, in everyday life. And so I'm, when people talk about something that's true for you but not for me, I want to press the matter a little bit. This is a view called relativism. I want to press the matter by saying, well, can you really live that consistently? Uh, indeed, is that itself coherent? Can you say that there is no such thing as truth without admitting that the truth exists? For example, if you say there is no truth, then you are saying that it's true, that there is no truth. Relativism ends up becoming self-refuting. And if a view is self-refuting, then you ought to reject it. That is a very practical outworking of philosophy, that one should not embrace a view that is self-contradictory or self-refuting. And so if in my very articulation of my own view, I am contradicting myself, I'm, I'm basically just falling off the branch that I'm sitting on, and that I ought to reject that kind of a philosophy and get in touch with a philosophy of life that connects with reality rather than is detached from reality. Well, it seems like today more and more people seem to be giving up on an idea of any kind of real truth out there, and everything seems to be relative to them. So that seems like your approach is to address a lot of those issues that people like that are having. I certainly do try to do that. And I think there's often a lot of confusion that comes with the notion of relativism and absolute or objective truth. And one of the problems is that if people, if you take this view that knowledge means 100% certainty, then you're going to get a lot of things wrong. And one of the things that I tell people is that there is this common extreme that people go to. They will go to the extreme either of defining knowledge as having 100% certainty, or they'll go to the other extreme by saying, well, we just can't know, or uh, we are stuck in this mire of relativism. Maybe that's just true for you, but not for me. And what I, uh, what I emphasize is that that knowledge, is something that we can have, even if we don't have 100% certainty, that we can still call some things knowledge. There are degrees. It's just kind of like a scale. Things that are highly probable, things that are virtually certain, things that are uh, you know, likely or probable. There's, there's a spectrum, just as you would have negatively if something is improbable or uh, definitely uh, false or something like that. You can have a, a range. And we can know some certain things with greater confidence than others. But just because we don't have 100% certainty doesn't mean we can't call something knowledge. And there's this strange assumption that people have that if you believe that your view is true, that is somehow arrogant. Well, I tell people that it's no more arrogant to say, for example, that Jesus is the new revelation of God, than it is to say, well, the earth is round rather than flat. Again, there's nothing personal intended here. It's simply declaring the way things are. But people say, well, that's arrogant. You, who are you to say that somebody else is wrong? Well, of course, the person who's saying that is saying, well, you're wrong for saying that somebody else is wrong. So, you know, to, to, to live in a mode where you're denying truth or speaking confidently about how you can't know the truth, you're in the same position as the person who is like the Christian who says that Jesus is the unique revelation of God. So, so anyway, this is, you know, this is 
really big in our own society, where, as you see, the polls, uh, you know, Gallup polls and others, Barna polls, they indicate that there is an increased number of people who identify themselves as relativists, who say that there is no such thing as objective truth, who say that truth depends upon the circumstances, or morality depends on circumstances. And it's important for us as Christians to think more clearly about these issues. And of course, after all, this, this has a, a bearing on how we communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. If people are relativists, then they don't believe that there is any standard that they have fallen short of. They don't believe that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if that's the case, then how do you communicate a message of redemption to someone when that person hasn't even acknowledged the need for redemption? So there is very much bound, there's a lot bound up with our very proclamation of the Christian faith, of the good news of Jesus Christ to a relativistic society. So we've got our work cut out for us, uh, but by God's grace, we can see uh, step-by-step people coming to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ, but, uh, but it's important for us to not only communicate the good news of Jesus uh, and, and, de- and defend the, the integrity of truth, but we also need to do so winsomely with gentleness and respect as persuasiveness. Wonderful. Well, now, you're teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Is that a Christian university? Is that a secular university? It, it kind of sounds to me actually like a party school. I don't know. Maybe because it's in West Palm Beach. <laughs> well, that's, there is sometimes that association, but there are other universities that sound kind of like it that are more likely to be the party schools. Okay. Uh, Florida Atlantic University or Florida International University. Uh, you know, those are secular schools. Uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University is a Christian liberal arts university okay. in West Palm Beach, Florida. I have about 3,200 students and I'm different uh, schools like pharmacy, nursing, uh, school of ministry, uh, arts and sciences, and so forth. Uh, so, but it is, you know, everyone who teaches that Columbus Atlantic is a professional Christian, finds a doctor of Gotcha. Well, you know, one of the things I noticed, I looked at the list of your of your books, and I do definitely see that aspect of yours, that you're definitely trying to reach out and make things practical. You're not just taking a complex a problem like maybe the problem of evil, and then writing a 500-page book on what you think about the problem of evil. But what you're instead doing is, here are some practical ways that if this comes up in conversation that you're having, then here's what you can say. Here's a response to some of the questions that come up in a regular conversation. But some of the titles you have, I love them. I don't. Do you do you think up these titles, or do you have a great a publisher who uh, who does all these titles. Well, I guess I take credit for the first three. Okay. Uh, for you, but not for me. That's just your interpretation. How do you know you're not wrong? The fourth one, the publisher recommended when God goes to Starbucks. And yeah. So that's what people fancy, and uh, so maybe we'll keep that coffee scene in there, like that cafe du monde stuff. Uh, when God goes to cafe du monde, so. But, but anyway, uh, that, those are the four titles. Then I've got another one coming out on Old Testament ethics uh, in January, and that is called, Is God a Moral Monster? That is, the uh, subtitle is Understanding the Old Testament God, but you about the question of the Canaanites. Yep. So okay. you know, let's see, what, what does the jealousy of God mean? The arrogance of God in the Old Testament. God wants people to worship him. Doesn't that sound arrogant? Uh, they deal with the question of all right. Paul, are you still there? We um, 
don't hear anything from you. All Did right, we we'll, lose him? Could be. All right, we'll get our uh, sound engineer to try and regain contact with our guest. And close. Paul, if you can hear us, go ahead and call back in. We'll we'll connect you up. That's interesting. I uh, I went to look at uh, Mr. Coban's website, which is paulcopan.com, and they have a list of his books and a number of articles that he's written over the years, which are on the website here. You can access them and read them. And one of them is called Is Yahweh a Moral Monster? And that one leaped out at me like, wow, that's a neat title. That's something I'd like to read. What was that, a, a book or an article? Uh... It looks here like it was an article he had published somewhere. Maybe he used that as the basis for this new book he's coming out yep. with. Yeah. Well, he has a—that's definitely one of the things that he discusses in some of his books. So um, It's amazing to, that today we would even ask a question like that. You know, like if you say, well, was Hitler a moral monster or, you know, was Mussolini right. a moral monster? That's kind of a natural question. But to say, is God a moral monster— that's right. a question that years ago wouldn't even have been asked. Right, and I think it has to do with a lot of the this wave of books by atheists that's been out in the last couple of years. Yeah, uh, people like Christopher Hitchens. Um, you know, I think one of the titles of the books was uh, "God is Not Good," mm-hmm. and it went over some of these um, accusations from the Old Testament. You know, that God ordered the Israelites to exterminate everybody in the Promised Land, and so this is a kind of a genocide, and mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing. So, so that's one of the things that Paul um, talks about. And I have to, I have to tell a funny story about. Uh, I had his book, True for You But Not for Me, and um, uh, I was reading it about three years ago, so I had it with me when I went to the hospital, and I had it on my uh, implant bag, and one of the nurses comes up to me and she goes, Oh, True for You But Not for Me, that sounds like a great book. I love that saying. I say it all the time. So she says, can I look at this? And I said, sure. And, and your blood pressure on your monitor immediately went up, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I said, sure. And she, she takes it away, and, and she comes back about five <laughs> minutes later. This isn't what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, she just kind of set it back down and didn't say anything. So I think we have Paul back on the line. That's funny. Are you with us again, Paul? Yep, I am. Thanks. Oh, good. <laughs> So um, I was just telling that story about the, you know, people really do say these things like, you know, what's true for you is is not true for me. They really actually, I oh, guess, yeah, in a I've way, believe that. it. Yeah, sure they do. It's crazy, but they believe it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there is such a reluctance to talk about the truth. Again, the, the danger, a lot of people think that if you say that you what you believe is true, then that's somehow arrogant and... We need to be better at separating the question of truth from attitude. And sometimes Christians are indeed in danger of coming across in a haughty way that they are somehow better than others because they're Christians and other people aren't. Uh, So there are some perhaps uh, lessons that we can learn from people who are coming from a more relativist perspective and that we uh, show grace, uh, that we show ourselves to be the recipients of grace rather than uh, some sort of uh, superiority complex that mm. comes across. 
Mm-hmm. But wouldn't you say too that um, this is often this attitude is often used as an excuse to not deal with God or the moral standards that He stands for? They just say, you know, things like, "Well, that's true for you, but not for me." They don't think through what they're really saying when they say something like that because they really don't want to know if it's wrong because that's their excuse for saying, well, I don't need to deal with God or the Bible or any of these moral questions that you're bringing up. Right. Yeah, you're right. I think that what is what we need to understand fundamentally is that relativism is not a viewpoint that is based on some sort of intellectual search for the truth. There, where people said, you know, I've really thought long and hard about this, and I've just looked at it from every angle, and you know, relativism just must be the case. No, you know, if you do that, are, it falls apart. Oh, exactly. Uh, people, if they if they are really thinking logically about relativism, they will take they will have to be taking for granted that logic is itself objective. If they're if they why are they trusting their thought processes? Uh, they believe that the laws of logic apply to reality. And so, again, relativism is an anti-intellectual pursuit. Uh, but, uh, but So it's important to remember that people are relativists because they want their own elbow room. They want personal freedom. They don't want to have to deal with anything that hems them in uh, morally, for example. And so understanding that the motivation is personal rather than intellectual, is going to be critical for us, because if we think that we can just kind of bring them around, give them that uh, you know, cold splash of water to wake them up out of their intellectual stupor, uh, then we're going, uh, going about it the wrong way. If we, but if we understand that people are not motivated by truth, uh, such that when you point out a contradiction, they might just shrug their shoulders and say whatever, uh, then you can, you can make progress. And I think it's important for us to actually ask people, well, why are you a relativist? Uh, why do you believe that things are true for one person but not for another? And notice that they will start giving you objective reasons, uh, reasons that they take to be true for all people. Uh, like, for example, there's so many differing belief systems. Oh, you know, is, is that just your observation? Or do you believe that that's universally true? Those are the sorts of things that we need to start asking. And it's important that we model lives of integrity before people, that we actually are living the truth, that we, in a sense, expose the hollowness of a relativistic lifestyle that is you know, utterly devoid of any foundation, uh, devoid of any content, uh, devoid of any direction. And you know, we're just not meant to function as relativists. And indeed, people will typically be inconsistent relativists. They will say, yeah, I'm a relative. Basically, they'll say, I'm a relativist when it comes to morality or uh, ex- cheating on exams or something. But, uh, but they're not going you know, to be relativists when it comes to, say, who uh, you know, won the, you know, who, you know, who's, who's the, the winner of, say, today's uh, World Cup soccer game between uh, Germany and Australia. Uh, you know, it, it's not as though, well, you know, Australia won for, you know, for me, Germany won for you. Uh, that's just not going to cut it. Uh, you know, I like to tell the story of my friend J.P. Moreland, who was speaking to a student at the University of Vermont, and this student uh, told him, whatever is right for you is right for you, and whatever is right for me is right for me. We just shouldn't go around forcing our views on other people. So J.P. Moreland, Christian philosopher, uh, finds out where the student lives, goes into his room, 
starts to unplug this student's stereo system and walks out of the room with it. And the student says, hey, you can't do that. And J.P. Moreland said, what? You're not going to force your view on me that it's wrong to steal your stereo, are you? <laughs> and so uh, you know, he, he went on to t- say that when it comes to things like sexual morality or cheating on exams, you say, hey, that's just true for, you know, it's just true for me but not for you. But when somebody violates your rights or steals your property, then you say, hey, that you, you can't do that. There is this recognition that people who are relativists have a very strong inclination to affirm that they have rights. It's kind of interesting. You, know, you, you pit them both against each other, uh, you know, you, you, but yet the relativists talk about having their rights. Well, rights don't exist if you're a relativist. Uh, no. Rights mean nothing if you're a relativist. What's interesting in this scenario is that this relativist ended up becoming a Christian because he recognized the connection between human dignity and worth and rights and the existence of God, that he couldn't live consistently affirming that he had certain rights to, say, his property or whatever, and to affirm relativism. He recognized that there needed to be some sort of a transcendent source of human dignity and worth. And so I like to kid uh, people I talk to about this being a great new evangelistic method called stealing stereos for Jesus. <laughs> that that reminds me of one of my favorite stories by C.S. Lewis, where he dealt with the same idea that, you know, relativists are not consistent. And he said, the next time you get on the subway, uh, try to steal somebody's seat and then see what their response is. They'll usually say, hey, you can't do that. That's not fair. Right, exactly. Right. Yep. All right. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. With um, I'm Kirk Hastings. Kirk Hastings, our uh, guest host. host. Yeah, guest hosting. And on the line we have author and professor Dr. Paul Copan. And Paul, I, I was showing. I was driving along this morning, coming back from church, and my daughter was looking over your book, and she looks at the table of contents, and she says, sees one of the. One of the chapters says, you're just using Western logic. And she goes, oh, that sounds like my professor. <laughs> so she, here she is, just got finished with her first year at a Christian college in the honors program. And the head of the honors program is a, a um, postmodernist professor. Oh, who's, great. Yeah, who's telling her that... Uh, uh, that there's a difference between Western logic and other types of logic. So, what, what I would be interested to find out what his other forms of logic are, other than Western logic. So, Paul, how, Eastern how, logic and Northern logic and he Southern so. logic and Paul, how do you, how do you handle? How does somebody handle something like that when somebody says that that's just your Western logic? In fact, the what you've been saying now in in defending Christianity, that's just your Western logic. Is it? Is there a Northwestern logic? <laughs> Yeah, well, those are good questions. Uh, well, it, what it kind of, it's kind of interesting that the Christian faith came out of an Eastern context, not a Western one. So let's keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. That's uh, true. As secondly, I'd like to know what people mean by Western versus Eastern. And typically the answer you get is the Western logic has this what's called disjunctive, uh, this either-or type of logic where you uh, say if this is true, then that must be false. And the Eastern logic is the more absorbent kind. It's the, it's, it, it, it's, it's the both and variety. It doesn't exclude, it includes. And so the yin and yang type of thing? Yeah, exactly. Yin-yang is a, a typical uh, 
there's two sides to every issue. You've got, you've got opposites, you know, the, these two fish that fit together within this circle of unity. Uh, you've got opposites within. You've got the black fish, the, the white eye, and the white fish, the black eye, and this circle that encompasses this. So it, there is a sense of unity uh, that transcends all of this contradiction and conflict stuff, this true-false stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the, but the problem, when you, when you reject Western logic, which I would say is simply basic Aristotelian logic, I mean, logic wasn't invented, it was discovered uh, by somebody like Aristotle. You know, these are the laws that, we, you know, that our minds operate in, that we recognize that, uh, that if the earth is round, it simply cannot be flat. Uh, that, you know, that if two plus two is four, uh, it simply cannot be five unless you change some sort of configuration. Uh, you know, so, so there is that that we need to understand. What I tell people is if you are rejecting the Western logic and favoring the Eastern logic, then what you're doing is you are operating on Western logic. You are saying it is either Eastern or Western logic. You cannot have both. And so the, the whole Western versus Eastern logic distinction falls apart because the Easterner is actually using Western logic to reject Western logic. <laughs> so, so again, uh, I think what a lot of people are, are trying to do is say, you know, you can't use those arguments on me. I mean, that's what's behind it, that your, your arguments don't really pertain to me because I'm operating according to a different logical system. Well, the very fact that a person is able to say, my system is different from yours, is itself to use a common logical system. Uh, That's using the either-or system again. That is the Aristotelian or Western, uh, that is the Western understanding, that that, A cannot equal non-A, or a thing or a belief and its opposite cannot both be true in the same manner or relationship. So it's so it, that whole idea of Eastern Western Eastern versus Western logic simply falls apart. Now there may be people who think in in different trains of thought. They may think you know in more storied forms rather than in propositional forms like we do in the West. That's true. Uh, they may uh, you, they may like proverbs and sayings and so forth uh, rather than propositions. Understandable. But what we still need to understand is that, uh, that logic cuts across all of those systems. And if you reject logic, you're going to, you know, you know that, that we are all accustomed to talking about, if you reject logic, you're actually using logic in order to reject it. Mm. <laughs> now, Paul, would you go far enough to, as to say that, that uh, what this Western logic, this form of logic, then, is Christian, and that other types of logic, or at least what people are claiming are other types of logic, are non-Christian? How, how would you address that issue? Well, I would say that this is simply how rational thought is carried out, uh, that, you, that uh, to avoid irrationality, one will have to think according to certain patterns. So it's basically, you know, again, rationality is rooted in God. God is a rational God, and his you know, he has created us with rational minds that we can think logically about things and reject what is illogical and so forth. So I wouldn't want to say that this is Christian you know, logic. I don't want to, in a sense, fall into the trap of this idea that, oh, this is just kind of my way of 
thinking or this is our the christian christian's way of doing logic mm. no you know all truth is god's truth and i think it's important for us to incorporate to, to understand that when anyone is thinking correctly whether he's a christian or a buddhist or whatever whenever anyone is thinking correctly about a certain issue or he's carrying out a logical syllogism to its proper conclusion that person is thinking correctly uh, he is thinking the way that he is designed to think mm. we've been hardwired by god to to be logical beings rather than irrational or logical ones we function well and properly when we're thinking logically it doesn't mean that we don't incorporate emotion and so forth but but we, we know if a, a view is illogical if it is self-contradictory it simply cannot be true and that's just the way reality is and and so i would rather say that this is simply a refl- that that correct thinking is a reflection of god's own rationality and the capacity that human beings have to think rationally so logic is a universal uh, you know, norm or standard. Uh, it cuts across all cultures. It cuts across all religious beliefs. When one is thinking correctly about issues, when one is drawing true conclusions that, oh, if this is true, then that must be false, that person is utilizing his God-given logical abilities, uh, even if he doesn't, you know, even if he's not a Christian. So th- that's the direction in which I'd want to point a person if we're talking about uh, logic, uh, you know, I'd say that some logic in its uh, correct form is, uh, you know, when it properly understood, is something that is universal and binding upon all people. Now, Dr. Copen, you teach at a Christian university, and, and my daughter, we sent her away to a very evangelical, uh, we thought, uh, Christian university, too. Are, are you seeing this trend of uh, professors downplaying um, you know, quote-unquote, Western logic and, and um, bringing in ideas that we might categorize as um, postmodernism, that kind of Relativistic. thing? Relativistic? Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, there is more of that. I think there's a, you know, in, in many ways, you know, we're seeing a fine-tuning of postmodernism that, you know, that I think some Christians see that there are some lessons that the postmodern can teach us. Uh, I think recognizing our limitations that we, uh, as Paul said, uh, are, are, are looking into a mirror dimly, that we don't see everything clearly, that we, you know, we need to take our context into consideration. You know, there are a lot of things that the postmodern can teach us, but I think uh, fundamentally postmodernism is flawed. So, so yes, there is, I think, a, uh, sometimes a reluctant talk about the uniqueness of Christ, or to say, well, you know, again, to have this kind of quote-unquote Christian postmodern perspective, uh, you know, that is uh, kind of soft, uh, has a soft underbelly when it comes to truth, and tends to be somewhat spineless. Uh, but, uh, but I think there's also a recognition, even with, you know, places where you would say, oh, they're, they're, they're pretty, you know, you know, strong evangelicals, uh, who are strongly committed to the truth, I think there's also recognition that the postmodern does have some things to teach us, and uh, you know, without compromising 
the commitment to objective truth, the truth that is, uh, that is, that is binding upon all people, not just uh, something that is true for me or my culture or something like that. So, so yeah, you are seeing both things. I think one, on the one hand, uh, a, a greater uh, you know, postmodern ethos that, that seems to be creeping in. But I think, on the other hand, other people realizing that there are uh, that there are, that postmodernism, you know, has its shortcomings. That that in itself, that if you take it to its logical extreme, it's going to end up being self-refuting. So we can, in a sense, sift some of the uh, the, the 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 good stuff, uh, some of the lessons that it has to teach us from the the negative things that we can reject that compromise the gospel, to compromise the uh, the existence of objective truth and so forth. You know, all of those sorts of things we we can do. But, uh, but it is a problem, and uh, you know, the, the whole idea of the postmodern influence, but I think a lot of people are also recognizing that uh, postmodernism has, uh, has its limitations. Mm. So you, you, I, I'm seeing both. Do you think as time goes on, we're going to be able to kind of reason our way out of this relativistic thinking as a society, or will we keep going the direction we've been going? Well, I think that uh, one, one big problem is I think it's not so much relativism as it is uh, Christians who fail to take the truth claims of the Christian faith seriously. I think a lot of times, you know, there's a book called Unchristian by David Kinnaman, who is the president of the Barna Group, and in his book he says that Christians have, a, you know, professing Christians in the, in the United States have a reputation for being anti-intellectual, uh, hypocritical, judgmental, too political, uh, too project-oriented. You know, Jesus is. You know, if you don't believe in Jesus, then I'm not really interested in you. Uh, and uh, anti-homosexual. Uh, that there's something personal Christians have toward people who are you know, engaged in a homosexual lifestyle. And those are the perceptions that Christians are up against here in the West. And I think that there is simply a a lack of Christian discipleship thinking rightly about the, the Christian faith, living out the Christian faith. I think when Christians are, are going to, are getting on track with are going to get on track with how they ought to live before the throne of God and uh, how they are to be salt and light in this world. I think until that time we're going to still struggle with a lot of relativism because the the difference between professing Christians and those who are not professing Christians is often not that uh, that tellingly different. So, so that's a big problem. When you live, however, in a place like uh, you know communist China, or North Korea, or places where you are a Christian, you know, in a, you know, say in a Muslim setting, there is no room for playing games with relativism. You've got to you've got to stand tall and be bold about your faith and your convictions, uh, or else. You are gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna just sink, and and you know there, it, it, you can't just kind of sit on the fence. A lot of Christians in other parts of the world, uh, you know, there is no place for relativism. There is no middle ground there. You're either for Christ or against him, and it be, and the lines are clearly drawn. So I think that uh, maybe if if the pressure heats up when it comes to uh, maybe threats to religious liberties and so forth. Uh, you know, maybe a certain persecution that say could break out in the in the West. Uh, 
uh, you know, that would be a way for, you know, to, kind of, to sift the wheat from the chaff, uh, the, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, so to speak, uh, that, that this is the sort of thing that might, I think, call people's attention to the need for living by the truth, not simply talking about the truth, but really not regarding it in one's everyday life. Hmm. All right, Dr. Copan. Now, one of the, uh, one of the other kinds of slogans uh, that you write about that people will often throw at Christians is, who are you to judge others? And I've heard that one before. Who are right. you to judge others? And that's meant to stop you in your tracks and that's definitely to, one of the top to five. Turn turn the tables on you, so to speak, and silence you. Right. Yeah. One of the problems with this claim, well, you're being judgmental, is well, one, a lot of people, even in the Christian community, will use this sort of thing. Don't judge me, or. Uh, you're being judged. You, you know, you're judging me when Jesus says in Matthew seven, "Don't judge, or you also will be judged." And of course, they don't understand what Jesus is talking about there. If you look at the context, Jesus is saying there is a problem that needs to be addressed. The brother has a speck in his eye. That's a problem. Uh, we're not talking about contact lenses here. We're talking about a problem, a speck that needs to be removed. The issue for the potential judger is that he may think that he is morally superior to the person with the speck in his eye, think that he's better, that he doesn't need grace like that other person does. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is warning that you need to check your own life. Go with a spirit of humility. Take the log out of your own eye. Then you can go help your brother who has a speck in his eye. There's a problem that needs to be removed. Jesus isn't saying, oh, there, there are no real issues out there. If you point out sin in someone else's life, or if you try to deal with sin in somebody else's life, that's, that's judging, that's wrong. No. In fact, Jesus says in John 7:24, he says, don't judge by mere appearances, but make a right judgment. So there's a place for judging, but it should not be a superficial, uninformed, hypocritical judgment. Uh, and so I think it's just helpful for, for us to ask, well, when you're saying I'm judging, what do you mean? And this is typically what, what the answer will be. Well, you said that so-and-so is wrong. You're judging him. Now, the problem with that is that that person is judging you for judging someone else. He's saying right. that you're wrong for saying that another person is wrong. And that is obviously a very inconsistent uh, approach to take. What Jesus is condemning is a sense of moral superiority over others. That is the sort of thing that Jesus is addressing and rebuking. But Jesus, you know, you know he, he, he points out in that same passage that there is a problem that needs to be addressed, but you need to take, take that upon yourself in a spirit of humility. Check yourself first. It's sort of like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where he says if, if, you, if a brother in the Christian community is overtaken in a fault. You who are spiritual, that is, you, anyone who has the Spirit of God, you who are spiritual, you know, restore that person, how? In a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. So that's basically the same sort of thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. Go in a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of condemnation, remembering your own weakness, so that you don't succumb to that, you know, to the sin of pride, 
that you also recognize that you can do that very thing that you're seeking to address in another person's life. Mm-hmm. So one of our our approach then can be when that person accuses us of judging is to acknowledge, hey, you know, I'm not perfect. Uh, I make mistakes too. I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but I know something that uh, that Jesus taught me. Exactly, but but I think even even more basically, just say, well, you know, what what do you mean by judging? Mm. And usually, you know, if, if people say you shouldn't point out anybody, you know, if, if they're assuming that you should never point out the wrong in anybody else's life. Uh, then you know that that what they'll probably say is, well, you shouldn't say that another person is wrong. That's what judging means. That you are saying that someone else is wrong. Well, uh, that is obviously inconsistent because that person is judging you, right. saying you're wrong for right. judging someone else. So it's important to get the definition clear because judging is a very emotional word that can often just be thrown around. And when you don't get clear on what the definition is. People can just throw it out there, and you just don't know how to deal with it. Get the definition down on paper, so to speak. Know what you're what you're talking about, and then you know, say, well, if you really are serious about the scriptures, well, let's you know, let's take a look. Well, Jesus says here, don't judge by mere appearances, but make a right judgment. What do you think he means there? And uh, and and so Paul himself, when there's church discipline involved, you know, like in First Corinthians chapter five, when there has been adultery, Paul says that he has already judged that person who has been living in an adulterous relationship and delivered him over to Satan. You know, that that is, you know, in other words, there is, you know, there is a place for excommunication Mm. in the Christian community if somebody is bringing harm to the body of Christ, whether it be through doctrinal uh, deviation, whether it be through uh, sexual immorality or something along those lines, or simply bringing division. Somebody who is bringing harm to the body of Christ needs to be pulled out. Again, the goal is not just getting rid of people who are causing trouble, but the goal is ultimately to restore that person mm. to, to, the, to fellowship and to becoming part of the body of Christ again. Now, a, a related uh, slogan that we hear a lot that's in your book is, well, you know, to be good, you don't need God. And right. this, I... I, I know uh, this happened to me so vividly. I was walking with a, a devout Muslim down the streets of New York City. We were heading from uh, just having had dinner and going to the theater, and I was trying to build a rapport with this Muslim. And I said, and we were talking, you know, it's a crowded street where everybody's rushing to their uh, different theaters. And I was saying how you and I have God that establishes for us a, uh, a, s- a solid set of virtues that we can build on and live virtuous lives, and then we can argue with each other as to what is actually true or not, but the world around us has nothing upon which to base right or wrong or even truth itself. And as we're talking, this woman who was walking to the theater in New York City actually turned around and said, oh, that's not true. You don't need God to, to be moral. Yeah, that is, um, I, I think in the last couple of years, there have been these you know, atheists and humanists that have been putting up billboards and uh, you know, the signs on buses and so forth. Uh, that say, be good for goodness sake. <laughs> In other words, uh, don't worry about some sort of cosmic Santa Claus who is making a list and checking it twice 
he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. No, just be good for goodness sake. In other words, leave God out of this. You can know right and wrong. You can know moral virtue, even if you don't believe in God's existence. Well, I think at one level that's true. People, whether they're atheists or theists, believers in God, they have been made in the image of God. That means they reflect certain characteristics, moral, spiritual, etc., that, you know, so they're reflecting God in certain ways, which, which means that they can recognize right and wrong morally, even if they don't believe in God. So you can have atheists who share a, a similar moral code when it comes to, say, adultery or not stealing or something like that. They can share the same kind of moral code, uh, at least on a human level, that the Christian has. And, you know, the problem, though, is, is that there is a, you know, that, that's just at the level of knowing. The atheist is basically assuming, you know, if I know, I can know right from wrong, and I don't need to believe in God, well, we can say, well, that's perfectly true. But if you believe that human beings have dignity and worth, that, say, a woman ought not to be raped because she has rights, that she has dignity, intrinsic dignity, then we have to ask the more fundamental question, where did that come from? Mm. How do we come to be moral beings in the first place? How do we get from a series of valueless, material, non-conscious, unguided processes that produce intrinsically valuable human beings? You see, and if you don't have God as a moral standard, how do you define right and wrong? Well, my, my, my more fundamental point is, how do you even get to valuable, moral human beings in the first place if there is no God? A, a good creator makes better sense of the existence of human beings having dignity and worth than a naturalistic worldview that says that we are the products of valueless processes, material processes that have ended up producing us, and somehow valuable beings emerge out of the, 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 the murky uh, um, slop or slime, you know, that this is simply, you know, just, uh, you know, the worldview itself. You know, theism offers us a basis for talking about, uh, you know, how human beings can have dignity and worth, mm. as opposed to naturalism, which means that you've got valuable human beings that have come from these valueless processes. Again, the, the, the worldview context doesn't fit that very well. Well, Paul, it has been a pleasure talking to you. We've been talking with Paul Copan, author and professor. And uh, Paul, just mention real quickly your website. Okay, it's uh, paulcopan.com, P-A-U-L-C-O-P-A-N, one word, paulcopan.com, and you can see the various books and articles that I've written, uh, itinerary, speaking itinerary, and so forth. And uh, so I trust that some of those resources that we've talked about will be helpful to your listeners in the future. Great. Thanks for being with us, Paul. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Kirk Hastings. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.